0: This podcast features discussions about finances and money, which are general in nature. For personal advice specific to your circumstances, see a licensed financial planner or relevant qualified professional. Hi folks, welcome along to another episode of Looking Under the Hood, the Money Mechanics podcast where we are unpacking the money stuff. We often talk on this podcast about the system and I'm excited to be joined by Dr. Angelique McGuinness who is a lecturer and researcher at the Central Queensland University. Angelique, I do love your bio, a curious entrepreneur with a PhD, whose motto in life is go with the flow and live in the present because it is a gift. And I just yeah love the uh, intent and the uh, whole uh, story behind that. So we'll get to that in a moment. Um, But today we're going to be talking about the financial services system regulation and potentially what an ideal model might be looking like and again this is going to be backed by some of the academic research that Angelique has been doing for a number of years now as someone who might be listening as a consumer or someone who might uh, be getting financial advice you might be thinking so what? what what does this mean to me Well, look, in my mind, the so what involves around the current system, there's so many barriers to people actually being able to get advice based on the legislative uh, framework that exists. So today I'm going to be interested to hear what uh, Angelique has to say on this element, but also on some of the research that, uh, that you've been doing. So Angelique, welcome along.
1: Yes, Scott, thank you very much. Um, I feel quite privileged to be asked by you.
0: Before we start, we've been asking all our guests to share a a happy or joyous early money memory. So, have you got a happy memory or a joyous memory that you're happy to share with us today?
1: Actually, something that has come to mind um, when my husband and I um, first had our first baby, you know, we were dual income earners, earning nice income. And I decided to be a stay-at-home mum. and so I stopped working and, we dropped from two incomes down to one and it took us about 2 years to adjust to the two income well to the one income from the two incomes and it was quite um, a shock to our system as to how much money we were wasting so it ha- improved our actual spending habits by going from two incomes down to one and i often think of, of it in, with fond memory because you know you don't realize how much you waste when you're young and frivolous and you know childless <laughs> until you have your first child and go, I oh, flip this is expensive but it's it I look back and I go, yeah, that was that was good times.
0: <laughs> Thanks for sharing that, Angelique and, and I guess look today, I know you've been in, in the past in, in the financial advice space yourself. I guess my first question is is what triggered you to move from being in financial services into the uh, academia and into that research space?
1: I actually left the sector not on happy terms. I walked away. What really triggered it, I loved working with clients, I loved the work, but it was the the unethical behaviours within the various licensees that I found I was butting my head against and I was constantly feeling I was having this internal constant fight Um, with my ethical values, which seemed to be incongruent with the ethical values of my licensees. And I just decided I just couldn't do it anymore, so I left. I made the decision Sunday. By Monday, 5 p.m., I was out. I was gone. And then it was like, what do I do next? Yes. So that was actually how I ended up. (laughs) I didn't um, intend to do a PhD. I just ended up, what am I going to do now? I can't work in this sector like it is. And so, um, teaching is something I'd done before. I was in a class one day teaching some other finance unit. It was just a pure corporate finance unit. And a previous lecturer had left a paper about agency theory, journal article printed on the table. I was doing on campus teaching at that stage. And I picked it up and just read it. And it was like, I had this aha moment of, oh my word, Agency theory and what's happening in the financial services sector, and the reason I left, like it came together <laughs> at that moment of reading this article. And I just thought, okay, I'm going to investigate this further. And then that led to licensing, because that was my struggle. I felt I was trapped as an advisor within the licensing model. I was franchised effectively to a license. See? And although I had my own business, I was like an employee in a way as well. And I had no independence.
0: Yeah. And and I guess for, for those listening, they, they may or may not be aware sometimes that there, there is a big range of structure that often happens between uh, advisors. So again, for a lot of my clients, they'd say, oh, yeah, Scott, Scott's my advisor. Um, but I've got a licensing model behind me. And so- it does add complexity, it does add uh, different layers of framework there or, or potentially guidance in, in the background to say, hey, we'd like you to do things this way. Angelo, I guess in your research, what, what have you found to be the, the limitations in the existing framework? What are some of the limitations that have come up in, in the research you've conducted?
1: Well, the main issue is the lack of independence when clients are asking for independent advice. Like, the, you, you can ask anybody in the street, if you had a choice, would you like somebody to give you independent advice free from any influence or, um, and influence can mean varying things, influence as an employee, as a, um, associate, you know, being associated, or are you happy to pay even less? I say it'll be, it'll cost you less for conflicted advice where, you know, it's from one product provider um, with you know their menu, and everyone you talk to would prefer independent advice. They all say independent advice, and then they say, but isn't it independent? Um, and no, but, so there is this misconception. So in there's this lack of independence, and the conflicts of interest is the um, is obviously the the main um, issue, which we all grapple with. And the complexity of of conflicts of interest. And I mean, I didn't even delve deep into conflicts of interest. I just looked at it from a more overarching um, point of view, macro point of view. Um, but that in itself is, uh, is complex as well. That needs, needs an understanding and defining, um, better definitions around what, what conflicts of interest really mean and for who it, uh, um, it impacts and, and what it means for each, um, you know, for, you know, for the advisor, for the client, for the licensee, for ASIC, um, and, and even the complaints authorities. The way they would, I mean, they all view it differently (laughs) if you look at, look at the issues. Um, so that was the other factor. And this link, this connection to, um, of advice to product, you sell products. You don't give advice on products. You, the product providers are selling a product and there's no problem selling anything. You know, I don't have a problem with product sales or financial product sales. It's like selling a house. It's like selling matchsticks out of a, you know, a matchbox. A product is sales oriented. But what was happening was the financial products were being sold as advice or under the umbrella of advice. One of the things that happened to me with one of the licensees that I, that I was licensed to is... I gave advice on and a strategy, and I won't go into the detail of the strategy, but there was a strategy that did not require, an, in the first stage of it, any product advice. So, it was just pure strategy advice. But this licensee said they insisted on one of their products to be incorporated. There was a lot of pressure on me to give this product advice, and I, I decided, no, I'm standing my ground and and so, they let it go, but I think they weren't happy with, with me about that. And that's also one of the reasons I left was this expectation that l- advice and product must be linked. Mm.
0: The strategy is so important. And again, I've, I've never worked in a big institution, thankfully, and, and I've always been sort of in the, the IFA uh, market. But again, that that strategy advice is so important. And as you say, like it doesn't have to have a product involved with it. So, I, I think, uh, yeah, trying to retain or keep that separation between product and, and advice is so crucial in creating a, an ideal system. So what what are some of the things in, in your research that you've found in regards to what that ideal system might be? And am I right to say you've also done some some research on sort of international systems as well or comparisons to, to how they operate? How does our system in Australia sort of compare to, to what's happening around the rest of the world? And, and what is that ideal, I guess, at the end of the day?
1: You know, I looked at the the US, I looked at even Canada, I see a pause even doing a few things, um, the US, but I focused on the UK and US being big Western countries because we're Western, mainly Western oriented. And what was happening at the time when I started my research was everybody was watching the RDR of the UK. And th- they sort of thought that's the way we need to all go. The US, I think, is has got problems it's they have so many states and their state legislation sometimes conflicts with other states so they've tried to sort of have a system of um, separating advice from product, but not actually saying so. The same with the UK. They tried a similar thing, but they more focused on individuals. So both the UK and, and the US focused on separating the individuals from that provide the advice from individuals that provide product sales effectively. So the sales versus that advice they separated but they've used different terminologies and ways of doing it but once again not clearly defined in even each country because for example in the in UK UK's got a very very good model but there's still a degree of linkage between product and advice. There's still this, there's not a very clear, clear cut yet. And also the way with the issue of commissions and fee for service. It's not that I'm, they didn't do a good job. They did a, they did the best they could because of their legislation. And this is the issue we're facing. But I think we have less of a problem than the US and the UK is we can actually. Clearly separate the two because the Corporations Act, we have a Chapter 7 that can be taken out of the Corporations Act and be standalone. And then obviously improved. Whereas in the UK and the US that didn't have that. And also in the US, they've got two regulatory bodies. Whereas um, UK, they've only got their one um, regulatory body. So that the competition between the regulatory bodies creates issues. So one thing I then realized when I looked at the different countries, uh, those two particular countries approaches was having a single regulatory body would be important and taking the individual advisor out of the conflicted scenario of being regulated through a third party. And that's the other thing that the US and UK still have to some degree. There's still a third party involved in part of that regulatory landscape. Not, I suppose, directly, but it's still there. But we have the opportunity to do a clear cut separation. Although um, a lot of Australians feel we should go down the UK route, but we, there's evidence now that the UK route, they, they, we've got to learn from their mistakes and not make those same mistakes. So they've got a base model there that we can definitely bring here, but I wouldn't bring it here in its totality. I would customize it to be more relevant to Australia, but make it very Clear separation so that it's clear to, to the consumer. And it's about terminology. And this is the issues we faced in the Corporations Act. And I find the Corporations Act very interesting. It was a, a very interesting legislation to study because it's so complex and the, the duplication, the double innuendos, the, the way you could interpret things differently to its intended purpose. <laughs> Yeah, too wordy of a document. And I think we can, if we're looking at trying to simplify things, then it means simplifying the legislation in order for statements of advice to be simplified and order for the framework that we've got. And we've got good frameworks, the six-step process. It's a good framework. Nothing wrong with that. The standards that's a good framework, having the 12 standards, but maybe some of the wording, maybe some of the interpretation, maybe of how things should happen, what is acceptable and unacceptable. We need clarity on that, but that will, I feel, come with time. So those, those ethical standards, I don't see a problem with that, except maybe, you know, improving the conflicts of interest, but the conflicts of interest standard can only be improved once they have changed the system, changed the legislation. So, definitely a single disciplinary body. But another thing that was quite evident um, when, I mean, I didn't um, do any analysis with consumers and that would be probably a nice study for someone to do, Um, maybe me one day, but um, finding time. But it's looking at it from the consumer's perspective, the the trust issue, the independence issue, the conflicts of interest, interest issue, because the three of them are very closely linked. You cannot just work on independence without looking at conflicts of interest. You can't just look at conflicts of interest without looking at independence. And then together, they determine the trust. They form the trust relationship that a client will have. But trust in itself, just those two is not enough. Trust is more than just what the legislation puts out there and what government's trying to do. It's going to come from the advisor. And, I mean, I had no problem getting clients trusting me. They trusted me quickly. Um, and it sometimes it kind of scared me because I'm going, what if I disappointed this person because they trusted me so jolly quickly, like they're not questioning anything I'm telling them. And so that is actually quite a scary thing. Because you could you could maybe make a mistake, and then that's you know uh, that that trust they initially had so quickly that, that makes them question. Then it affects them for the you know their future financial situation because now they're going to just. Dis- trust other advisors
0: so true yeah and we talk about about money which can be such a i don't know a formulated framework thing but actually the the emotion of dealing with human beings around some of their biggest hope streams aspirations like it, it is actually one of those areas where it can build up uh, trust trust quickly but then that can be misused so um yeah i love everything that you've just said there angelique and I know, you touched on and said uh, it's probably research that someone else needs to be doing. But, um, I guess in the context of, of the trusts, review, we've even got the quality advice, uh, review going on at the moment, uh, that the government is delving into. What does this mean for consumers?
1: You know, <laughs> when I first saw it come out, I was a little bit, oh, no, they're going back. But then, you know, um, I had uh, two or three days of digesting it and then I, I, I looked at what Michelle Levy was trying to do and I, and she was coming from it from a very good perspective is starting from the consumer, like from the, 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 the end moving towards the beginning. Um, but I think she has done a very, very good job. In fact, an exceptional job in nudging advisors to actually go wait a minute, What do we really want here? What should we be doing and what should what do we really, what do we mean by quality advice? And you know the term good advice versus quality advice, it's all terms. I think the quality of advice review is to get advisors to actually start participating, to make their voices heard. And if they don't take that opportunity, it's, it's an opportunity lost. And then we're back to where we were from the very beginning of this whole process. So I think it's a, a great job was done to nudge us to start taking control of our future, of our own destinies. And that is also one of the things that my research clearly pointed at. Until advisors take control of their own profession, it can never be a profession. can never be. If we want to be regulated like doctors, lawyers, accountants or all those other professions, engineers and so on, we have to make an effort and take control and charge. I believe government has been trying to nudge us over 20-plus years to get us to do that. But then, you know, we've got vested interests, which... Um, we all face so it's it's the licensees vested interest government's got its own vested interest. you've got taxpayers and consumers with vested interest, you've got the advisors with vested interest. even like your you know complaints authorities, assets got vested interest and it's like trying to balance those vested interests so that we get an outcome that uh, that ensures the consumer is protected first and foremost because that's the whole point of legislation. That's the whole reason for legislation. And then ensuring that there is the rest of the stakeholders, because we all are needed. It's just what role do we play and how much power each one has, who controls what. And I think that's what the lobbying has been all about. It has been a bit of a vested interest power issue, but there can be a balance that can be created.
0: Yeah. And Angelique, I think that that balance, do you think is, is the way that we become a, like, recognized as a profession? You mentioned doctors, engineers, lawyers before. Is that balance really how we create that? And, and is that what that outcome would be?
1: Absolutely. Because the doctors, lawyers, accounts are subject to legislation. They're all subject to legislation. And these the are professional standards. Um, legislation that they subjected to as well. Why can't we be part of that as well? The frameworks are there. And the lucky thing for us is we don't have to do two, three hundred years of pain and, and gain and history. We don't have to have a two, three hundred year history to get to a point where the, the doctors, lawyers and accountants are. Why, why do we need to go through all of that when they, have got these examples there, and we've already started creating the frameworks of what is there through the consultations with with some of these reviews. And, yes, we've moaned and groaned about all these reviews and inquiries, but it was necessary so that we can say, this is what we like, this is not what we like. Yes, some vested interests were a little bit stronger and might shouldn't have been, and there were parties involved that maybe shouldn't have been involved. But th- it makes it then very clear for us that we step up and, and say, okay, now it's now our time to now take control. And I think that's the next step for the emerging profession. I don't call it a profession yet because we're not. We're emerging. So we are now at that cusp of saying to government. With, through this quality of advice, evidence-based that this is not going to work. We don't want to go back. And that's wonderful. When you see submissions where people saying, this is taking us back, it's very good that government is listening, like giving the consumer a voice, giving us a voice, giving licensees a voice, giving the professional bodies a voice that you know, represents um, for us what we need to do. With any form of um, new body, Government can't continuously be the re- regulator or the, the, the disciplinary body forever. That's not their job. That's not their role. They need to transfer that. They're a stepping stone for this new body. Now, we've got professional bodies that's got frameworks, infrastructures that they've developed over many years that they can draw on, put together if the merger works, But it, but then it's creating a new culture within that body because I feel the, the professional bodies could potentially become the first licensing body that's then overseen by, you know, the main regulator. I can see that that is a potential, but it'll only work if advisors buy into it, if it's going to run like a true profession. But what's interesting is, How we can learn from other professionals, just thinking about this, is the fact that other professions may have more than one professional body. It causes problems. We have an opportunity to go learn from and go, okay, we'll always just stay with one.
0: That, that It's interesting, and I think we, we have a, a time now where consumer expectations are changing, delivery methods of advice are, are changing, and, and hopefully we'll see some clarity around new statements of advice and, and how they might be more concise for people. In in the context of that change, what do you think, and again, you've probably answered this in, in some of your other statements before, but what, what can the sector be doing to combat some of those demands or, or change what our offering is to market.
1: Okay, what I'm seeing at the moment with QAR and with all these reviews is the advisor is outside. So it we're making submissions to people, that are making recommendations, although they may be qualified as a lawyer or, you know, as an academic or you're not having advisors sitting on the team of reviewers in the review process or on the commission, unpacking and coming up with recommendations. The recommendations are being generated from outside really of the advisory sector and going forwards, I'm hoping that that will change because until I think advisors are are the panel, we're going to constantly have this to and froing of ideas and lobbying and this won't work and that won't work. I think going forwards with change, whatever body gets put together, the People on the board must all be financial advisors, maybe have a one or two external, you know, I would in fact suggest that there would be a non-executive, a consumer, somebody to represent the con- consumers and somebody from outside, independent. But just as a, um, I suppose, more of a reviewer than making recommendations. That's where I see is the next step uh, and going forwards with this sort of change. It's got to be advisors. If it's not, it's going to fail. That body will be another fascia and it won't. It'll get disbanded. But I don't think that's the intent of government. I think they've been very strategic in what they're doing and trying to sort of ease us into taking control and and kind of ease us but force like with a bit of a quite a lot of pressure. Because if we don't, then we got they're going to de- they're going to get a lawyer tell us what we're going to do and what we're not going to do and how it's going to happen.
0: Mm. No, no, definitely, Angela, and I think that's a fascinating. Um, and as I say, like, I think there's, there's so much going on at the moment, movement wise, but I'm, I'm excited that there's actually now academic research to probably back up some of the thinking behind this, as opposed to it just being people's opinion or people's view or other people coming in to say, Hey, <laughs> this is how we think uh, an ideal system uh, might look. We do keep these episodes short and sweet. So again, we could be talking about this uh, for, for probably uh, all day. Cause I, I, I love the topic and I, I love your insights and how we're going. Thank you again so much for your time. I think for those listening, uh, there are some interesting things going on with the quality advice review. Uh, Angelique, I'll, I'll put some of the links to your uh, research papers as well, just around what you've been doing in the background. And I know some of the the reporting is from sort of the, the 2017, 2016 uh, timeframe, but I think there's still relevance around how that all comes together anyway.
1: Yeah. And also the quality of advice review submission. I submitted um, a joint submission with Daniel Jackson and Andrew Lane, and there's some very interesting insights in there as well. And I think also the FPA-AFA combined submission, also very good, very relevant, and it's giving me hope that advisors are stepping up and, and making their voices heard and saying we can do this because I believe they can. Government's just got to let go and trust that we can do this.
0: Yeah, definitely. Because I think the quality of advice, people getting advice, uh, consumers getting some really great positive outcomes for that strategy-based advice. Sure, there might be product involved with it at the end of the day, but a lot of the time that getting the strategy right is so important and crucial uh, for Australians to be able to have a good uh, relationship with their money and. and Ideal financial outcomes at the end of the day. Angelique, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for listening. And again, if you've enjoyed today's podcast, please uh, like us uh, where you are listening from and uh, give us a rating. Uh, we'll see you all next time.